Uh, I'm really excited, though, about tonight. I love when we gather together and have the opportunity to ask questions and get some answers. Let me share with you how this began. Um, many years ago, I was, when I was pastoring in Massachusetts, I bumped into a member um, outside of church, and he said, I'm so glad I caught you. I've got some questions I've been wanting to ask. And we sat there and we talked for almost an hour while he asked question after question about Bible and church and religion. And I remember saying to him, I said, man, you have a lot of questions. And he said, well, we never have an opportunity to ask what we really want to know. That when we come to church, we may have some questions that landed on us through life and through our experiences, but when we come, the choir sings what they think God wants us to hear. You preach what you think God wants us to know, but very rarely do we get to raise a hand and ask a question. And because of that, you know, one of the things I began to implement back then in Massachusetts was let's create some space and time where it's not me bringing what the Lord put on my heart, but you bringing what life has left you with a question mark. Uh, that we get to ask the real things we want to know um, as an opportunity to one, be a blessing, and then two, I believe that for every person that asks a question, there's someone else who's probably wrestling at least in the same neighborhood. Um, and so some people were bold and brave enough uh, to send in some questions online. Um, and I'm gonna take a few moments to address those and as time would allow, maybe take some from the floor. I wanna give a qualifying remark, James, I am not an expert in anything. I'm not a relationship expert. Clearly, that is not my area of expertise. <laughs> Uh, but I am highly opinionated um, and have no problem sharing what I believe is at least an informed opinion. Um, I thank God that in November I'll be celebrating 30 years of preaching, 21 years of pastoring, and have had, thank you, have dedicated outside of undergrad 12 years of my life to theological study, reflection, and writing. Um, so. I would like to believe my opinion is a little bit informed, um, but yet I also know it's an opinion. So I'm gonna couch that uh, with all the questions that I seek to answer, realizing that ultimately, the greatest thing I can ever do is help you hear from God yourself. Um, and then you be obedient to what the Lord has placed on your life. Um, the categories for our questions are all over the place, but you can almost uh, guess what the highest level of questions are all about, relationships, um, so some of these sound like a strawberry letter, and we're just going to go ahead. Um, we're going to go ahead and get started. Amen. Um, the names of the innocent shall be kept so that we do not. Um, so let me, here we go. Good evening, Kaya. Let me start by saying I love having these moments with our pastor. My question is something that I've been dealing with since I began to date with intent. Over the past few years, I've dated some great some great on paper men. <laughs> Tall, dark, handsome, and most importantly, employed. Uh, <laughs> these men can carry on conversations in the barbershop and the boardroom. They have all stimulated my intellectual curiosity in ways that I never knew possible. Sounds like I should have been content with one of them, right? Well, after a few months of dating, in each instance, I discovered that their relationship with God isn't quite how it was originally presented to me. Uh, <laughs> one guy initially told me he grew up in the church and doesn't, like, and doesn't go like he used to. Well, after extending yet another invite to go to church with me, he tells me that he is, in fact, struggling with his belief in a white Jesus. We ended up having a very heated exchange about what it means to be blessed and that Jesus isn't white, nor is he a manifestation of white supremacy originating from slavery. You go, girl. You go. Uh, um, I was able to hold my own, and shortly after that argument, I decided I no longer respected his thought process, uh, wouldn't, <laughs> would never be able to submit, so I broke things off. Um, shout out to your sermon, being a Christian in a multi-faith world. Another man I dated similarly talked about his relationship with God, and while he believed that Jesus existed, he believed Jesus to be more of a prophet than our Lord and Savior. He said he'd have difficulty letting his children even go to church because he wants them to make up their own minds about what religion, if any, they chose to follow. He didn't pray and believe that some higher power maybe existed. 
I couldn't deny my unborn children access to one of the most amazing experiences of my life, so I broke things off with him as well. You go, girl. Yeah. Ending both of these relationships is very hard for me, but I know that God always has better. I did struggle with either or not. I did struggle with either or not. I was making the right decision to walk away. With that being said, the man I'm dating now, you go, girl, uh, <laughs> uses God and the universe interchangeably. He prays with me and even goes to church faithfully. He believes the Bible is more a book of parables that teaches us lessons than an actual de deception of things, description of things that happened. He wouldn't have any objection to his children going to church. I've been prayerful about this relationship, so here's my question. You recently preached about... <laughs> you recently preached about having a love like Ruth without expectation and obligation. That sermon has left me wondering how to navigate relationships that don't quite line up with the picture I envision in my mind. Should I continue to love in spite of these differences in belief, or should I run in the opposite direction? I do not wish to be unequally yoked with someone that God does not have for me. What does God call us as believers to do in situations like this? Um, a few things I want to address before um, an answer. One, I want to appreciate anyone who has some non-negotiables um, and realizes that there's some things that simply mean not that you're a bad person and not that I'm a better person, but that we're not yoked equally together. Um, and I think it's very important to have an awareness of what your non-negotiables are. And a little while ago in one Kaya, I suggested that if on all your list of non-negotiables, there's nothing on there about a relationship with the Lord, then that says something about your relationship with the Lord. Um, um, like tends to attract like, and if you're comfortable with someone who has no love for God or recognition of a God presence in their life, that probably says something about your recognition of God. Um, number two, um, she says in the first instance that she broke up because she couldn't appreciate the way he processes. And I want to speak this, I'm pretty sure it goes both ways, but because I'm a male, I'm going to speak from a male perspective. I believe one of the most important things for a woman is to trust how a man processes life, um, how you think things through, um, so that even if I disagree with your decision, I can understand the logic of it. Um, it is very difficult to be in relationship with someone who the way they process leaves you wondering, why did you think that was a good idea? Like, what made you think that was the right way to respond to something? Because if I can't trust the way you process, I can't trust you to handle the issues that I need to put in your hands so that I don't have to deal with them and we can be balanced in how we handle this relationship. So that being said, faith has to be part of how you process. I need to know that there's some awareness of God in your life that at least factors into how you make decisions. Um, now, you can be unequally yoked when it comes to your relationship with the Lord. You can be unequally yoked in what you believe. You can definitely be unequally yoked in your confession of Christ as Lord and Savior. Some people see Christ as a prophet. Some people say that that's my personal Lord and Savior. Those are two very different things. And I am cautious of being in relationship or putting people in relationship who don't have the same perspective of Jesus Christ. So if you wake up saying he's my Lord and Savior, and she wakes up saying, he's just a prophet, y'all have a problem, right? And it, it, may not, it may not be evident right now, but keep living life and it will be. Uh, you can also be unequally yoked in your desire to grow in the things of God. Um, it's very easy to become content and stuck at stage one of Christianity. I go to church every now and then to someone who's seeking God on Wednesday evening because I want to be better Thursday than I was on Tuesday. So some people aren't equally yoked in that passion area. Um, I will say this. Um, there are, uh, th there's a passage in Acts chapter 17 that, um, in Acts chapter 17, Paul is in Athens, and he has taken a tour of the city and found idol gods that the Athenians have worshipped. And there's one idol that has no name. And when Paul speaks to those in Athens, he says, I see that you're religious and that there's a God you're worshiping who
whose name you don't know, let me tell you about him. And he begins to preach Jesus. What Paul has realized is that these Athenians have a desire to know the Lord, but are just a little off. And so he takes this opportunity to identify those who he believes has a heart for the Lord, but maybe a little misled, maybe a little ignorant, maybe a little skewed, and believes that he can help rectify them by speaking about Jesus Christ, which shares with us that there are some people who really do desire to be right with the Lord, but they don't know the right way. They don't know Jesus as Lord. They, so her first two examples are men who rightfully she strays away from. This third one, sister, he's probably like an Athenian. He, he's in the right neighborhood, but on the wrong street. And your life, your example of Christian living may be able to help direct him into the right path. Um, here, here to me, I made a list because I wanted to bring this in. Here to me are at least four things I think you should be looking for to determine are we equally yoked. Four things you should be looking for, and it's not, please, the don't, don't, the, on the list is not does he go to church. You wanna know why? Because that don't mean nothing. I'm just gonna be honest with you. Walking in the building means nothing. And if the assumption is you're gonna find a good man in church, you already deceived yourself. This is being honest, right? So let me share with you what, what I, I made a list. If, if I had a daughter, here's what I'd share, but since I have a son, sons, I'm gonna share these same things with them, right? Because they need to know. Um, the first thing I'm looking for is what you believe about Jesus Christ. That's critical. You know, do you believe that Jesus Christ is God who died on the cross and was resurrected? Because that's, that's the starting place of Christianity. Right? We can debate a whole lot of other things, but the one thing that's not debatable in Christianity is how you perceive Christ, his death, his resurrection, and his return. If there's no faith and belief in those, you technically are not a Christian. I don't care what church you go to, how big your Bible is, how many tongues you talk in. If you don't believe that Christ died, rose, and is coming again, you technically are not a Christian. You may be spiritual, you may be religious, but you ain't a Christian. Right? That's important. What do you believe about Jesus? Number two, do they pray? So I, I applaud her. She says that this brother prays with her. Let me tell you something. Praying with someone is more intimate than having sex with them. Right? It, anybody can jump in bed. But do you know what it takes to want to grab a hand and say, let's call on God together? Right there. Are they praying? You, you go home and read Acts chapter 9. When Paul was converted on the road to Damascus, you remember that Paul was a persecutor of Christians. And the Lord then has the audacity to go to Ananias, a Christian, and say, listen, I need you to go to Paul and mentor him. And Ananias looks back at God like, you must be crazy. He is a persecutor of Christians. I'm not going over there. Here's what God tells Ananias. Don't worry about that. He's praying now. The validation of Paul's faith was his prayer life that really what witnessed to the fact that the Lord was in his life was that he was praying. And I've said at Alpha Tree, and would say to you all that prayer is the only thing you do that lets God know you know God is real. Prayer is the only thing you do that lets God know that you know he's real. Coming to church doesn't mean you know God is real. Owning the Bible doesn't mean you know God is real. Singing in the choir doesn't mean you know God is real. What really testifies to the reality of God in your life is that you pray. And so not only am I asking what you believe about Christ, I'm asking, do you know how to pray? Are you, and I'm, that doesn't mean you pray for three hours, doesn't mean you talk in tongues, but it also means that there comes a moment when you're not ashamed to say, can we pray? Or let me pause and pray about it. Do they pray? Number three, is faith part of how they process life? Is life simply a, a matter of equations and everything has to add up? Or is there any space for faith? 
that says, you know what, I'm going to trust God here. The Lord's going to make a way. That's what, I'm, that's what I'm looking for, for you to have a recognition that God can make a way in this thing. I need you to be able to look at that sickness and believe that that ain't the end of the story. I need you to be able to look at the tension we have in our marriage and believe that God is able to fix this thing and bring us back together. I need you to be able to look at a financial obstacle and not believe that you got to go out in the street and start hustling, but that if we surrender to God, that the Lord will make a way somehow. Is faith part of how you process life? And then finally, is there any desire in your life to surrender to the will of God? To not live life under my own terms, to realize that I want to do this, but I feel God calling me to do that, and I want to surrender because the greatest thing I can bring to this relationship is a surrendered heart to God. So here's what, here's what I believe you ought to be looking for. What they believe about Christ, do they pray, is faith part of how they process, and is there a, a will within them to surrender to whatever God would have? Those to me are more critical than anything else. And sister, it seems to me like this last brother you got, he's in the right neighborhood. Um, I, I'd give him a chance. <laughs> and if it don't work, don't send me no email blaming me either. I've just, you know. okay. Okay. Um, let's switch gears a little bit. Um, well, actually, there, 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 there's two. One is real easy. I'm reading. Uh, um, it says anonymous question for Kaya. It's anonymous, but it came from. No, I'm joking. Um, <laughs> if a bride from the CME denomination, Christian Methodist Episcopal, and the groom was from the Baptist faith, and both were told that they could not have their wedding at their home churches because they were both from different denominations, how can they both move forward happily ever after on their spiritual journey as one? The easiest answer find another church, right? Because something, something is wrong with your church for denying your wedding because you're CME and he's Baptist. That's crazy. They're both Christian, right? Um, that, that, that's ridiculous. That was the easiest one I had all night. Um, you need to leave them churches and come to Alfred Street. All right. I was asked my opinion about Kanye's Sunday service. You know, there's been a lot of conversation. Um, and the question was asked, Pastor, what do you think about Kanye? You know, a lot of it gets sparked because we've seen him in uh, not just in out in L.A. now, but now in prominent churches. So he was at uh, Greater New Birth with Jamal. Uh, he was at Fellowship with uh, Reggie Sharp and what's my pastor's name? The Sings. Jenkins. He was with Jenkins and probably some other churches I'm not aware of. And it, it's caused a dialogue and this conversation between two extremes. Okay? On the one extreme are those who question the sincerity of Kanye's relationship with the Lord with a new album coming out, right? And an opportunity to clean up what many of us thought was just absolute craziness, right? That we all acknowledge that since his mother tragically passed away, Kanye changed a little bit, right? Um, then he was wearing red hats, right? He, he's on the Trump bandwagon. I love that song with he and T.I. Have y'all heard that one? Yeah. You, you got to listen to it. Y'all haven't heard this? Well, I forgot. Somebody Google the name of it. There's, and um, we can't play it in church because the deacon's here, but um, it's, <laughs> it, it's this debate. It's this hip-hop. It's, it's, it's a hip-hop song. It's a debate between T.I. and Kanye about Kanye backing Trump. Great, great. Someone find the name of it. We're going we're gonna to send you home with it. Um, <laughs> And so there are those who doubt the sincerity, and then on the flip side, there are those who say, you know what? He's given his life to the Lord. Um, grace ought to apply to everyone. He's ministering in the name of Jesus. Hundreds of people are giving their life to the Lord. So how do, how do we reconcile that? Um, let me begin with a real quick comment and let you know that I'm not really 
any longer a Kanye fan. Um, and that, that's a lot to say because I'm from Shy, right? And Kanye's from Shy, but most of the artists from Shy, I'm kind of walking away from these days. <laughs> My mind's telling me no. <laughs> uh, 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 Yeah, I'm not a, you know, and I used to really, really enjoy Kanye's music. I thought College Dropout was just a phenomenal um, album. But the, the Trump thing was too much for me, right? That was just way too much. What is it called? Yay versus the people. Yep, yay versus the people, all right? Yeah. Yee versus people, okay. Y'all got it, y'all listen to it. So let's talk about the two extremes. Um, with, that, with that caveat out there, that I'm, not, I'm no longer a huge Kanye fan. Um, the issue about the authenticity of his conversion, or is this just a successful marketing scheme? Um, there are those who say, well, you know what? Um, and I had this conversation today. He's using the name Jesus. He's not out there just talking about there's a God. Um, his album has Jesus in the very title, and that, that can't be bad, right, to have the name Jesus out there. Um, and, and that's true, but you got to remember Jesus' own words in Matthew 7, 21, that everyone who says, Lord, Lord, is not going into the kingdom of heaven. And so simply, I, I appreciate that, but that in and of itself does not indicate an authentic relationship with Jesus Christ, um, simply using the name Jesus. Um, I will say this, though, I don't think it's for me or anyone to make a judgment about whether his confession in Christ is sincere. Right. Because, because none of us know what's in his heart. Right. None of us really know what his walk with the Lord is in his private time. And so I could give commentary, but I need to model what the Christian thing is, and that is for us not to make judgment on someone's declaration of their confession of Jesus Christ as their Lord and Savior. Um, and yes, there is grace for Kanye. It, that, that's what we believe as Christian, right? That if, that if I can be the worst sinner and the Lord still love me and give me another chance, then we would be very hypocritical not to afford at least that space for Kanye to have had an authentic encounter with Jesus Christ, and that's his Lord and Savior. And I don't know, so I'm not going to cast judgment, and I want us to avoid casting judgment. Um, there are two passages of Scripture I want to refer you to that are really powerful. Um, one is in Luke chapter 9. In Luke chapter 9, verse 49 and 50, the disciples are with Jesus, and they get mad because there's another group who's casting out demons, but they're not part of the disciples, right? So the disciples are hanging with Jesus. They look out, and they see another brother casting out demons, but he ain't part of us. And so the disciples go to Jesus like, yo, shut him down. And Jesus says to them, it's no harm to you. Leave him alone, right? If, if what he's doing is positive, we'll work that out later, but you leave that alone, that they don't have to be part of you for them to be used by God, all right? So that, that, that's just one biblical model. Another is in Acts chapter 5. And this one's even more important for me. In Acts chapter 5, the Pharisees are debating what to do with these new Christians. What are we going to do with Peter and James and John? And they want to stone them and put them to death. And the Bible says that Gamaliel, who actually is a mentor of Paul, Gamaliel steps up in Acts chapter 5, and this is what he says. If this thing is of God, you can't stop it anyway. And if it's not of God, it's going to die on itself. We don't have to do much with Kanye. If it's of the Lord, it will prosper. If it's not, it will shut it down and die. And if by chance someone comes to believe in Jesus Christ through what you may declare is even a 
an inauthentic confession marketing scheme, but that doesn't mean that the person who came to know the Lord, that their faith is not true and real, so leave it alone. My, my thing is leave it alone. I'm not inviting them here. <laughs> um, just because that's not my thing. And, and here's why, because that's not my thing. And let me tell you why it's not my thing. The problem, I, so here's the problem I have. Leave the movement alone. Let it do whatever it's doing. If it's of the Lord, it will work. If it's not of the Lord, it will fail. Kanye will give an account to the Lord. I will never have to give an account for what Kanye's doing to the Lord unless I bring him here, right? Well, I don't, I don't have to give comment. Here's the problem I have with the movement, okay? And it's not that there's anything bad. It's that number one, James, don't get mad at me. Don't you get mad at me. But music of itself does not lead to salvation. Music ministers to the word, but we are clear, and I'm not trying to lift up preachers and say there has to be a preacher. It's not, it's not so there, there are a group of people who are really enamored with the music, but I don't know if the, following the music is what leads to salvation. Right? Remixing R&B songs and putting gospel lyrics in it, I, I don't know if that leads to salvation because I'm such a strong believer and you need to know the Word of God. Right? You, need, you need to know they that wait on the Lord shall renew their strength. You need to know all things work together for the good of them that love the Lord. You need to know that if we confess our sins, God is faithful to forgive us. You need to know that God so loved the world and gave His only begotten Son. It's the Word. Faith cometh by hearing and hearing by the Word of God. The second problem I have is I, I question where does this movement leave people? It may introduce them to Jesus Christ, but does it develop them as Christians? What, what happens after I follow Kanye? Because you know what? You have to belong in a church. You have to learn the disciplines of faith. You have to learn how to pray. You have to have people who challenge you when you walk in sin. You have to mature and grow in the faith. And the problem with the movement, from what I see and I don't know, all the after effects is that it's a great feeling, but it leaves me at the first base of Christianity. And I don't grow, I don't mature, and there's, there's really no glory in that. So I'm not gonna comment, not gonna credit, I just wish that it would help develop people even more beyond simply liking the music and following Kanye and not being in traditional church. Some people are attracted to it because they don't like traditional church. They don't like church. Church has left such a bad taste in people's mouths because Christians are the most hypocritical people you can ever meet. And because of that, they like following something that's unchurchy. Okay, that's fine. You don't need, you don't have to be church to be Christian, but you do have to grow in Christ. And I don't know if Kanye is called to help people grow in Christ because babes can't teach babes, right? Uh, moving right along. All right. Let's read another one. I like this. This is really good. This one's about forgiveness. Pastor, how do you get past betrayal of a colleague and friend with your significant other? I considered this person a friend. She visited my home, and we worked together in and out of the office on efforts to support other corporate women like us. Although some time has passed, about a year, I can't help but have moments of weakness where I reflect on the hurt and betrayal I experienced, and I literally stay in bed all day. I've lost entire weekends, and there are spans of time where I'm unable to move, leave my home, or interact with others. I rarely go out, and when I do, I'm a shell of my former self. I avoid any and all places where we may run into each other. I've even resorted to only experiencing Alpha Street remotely on live feed because it's been too hurtful to see her in the pews gloating or making it uncomfortable for me to attend the service. This is real. She and my ex-boyfriend of two years were seeing each other while he and I were still in a relationship. Now, while I know my issue was with him, I'm still struggling with forgiveness. No, baby, your issue with her too. Um, I'm still struggling with forgiveness because I approached her, we had a conversation, and she adamantly denied even knowing him, which was not true. I saw the text messages and instant messages, and I believe they are together now. Although he continues to reach out, I have nothing to say, so I never respond. I know forgiveness is for me, but I've been emotionally broken, was on the brink of a nervous breakdown, 
knowing that all of this was happening under my nose, all while he would tell me that I was crazy, that I was being paranoid or resorting to other forms of emotional and verbal abuse. Can you advise on how to move beyond the betrayal, the hurt and the resentment, so that I can truly live in a way that removes shame and embarrassment? I just feel bound by it all and have not been able to fully bounce back. Sincerely bound by brokenness. This is not the pastor answer, right? I'm, I'm, I'm giving give that in a minute. Where your girlfriends at, girl? Y'all need to go. You, you know, you know, Peter carried a knife and cut folk. You know, you. you <laughs> if not, then you need a couple Peters, girl. Come on, we gonna go roll up there. All right, now we got that out of our system. Um, so let me tell you a few things that concern me about this. It seems, bound by brokenness, that this hurt and betrayal, which was very real, has triggered some signs of depression in you. And depression is fostered and fertilized by staying in isolation. I would encourage you, bound by brokenness, to find someone to speak to. Because these, this, these are clear signs, staying in bed, not wanting to get up, feeling a shell of yourself. These don't get better by themselves. And I wanna encourage you to know that there's nothing you use the word about having shame and embarrassment. There's nothing you should feel shamed or embarrassed about by going to speak to a mental health care professional, nothing at all. That is... We would never make someone feel embarrassed about going to see their PCP, and we should never make you feel embarrassed about going to see a mental health care professional. You need to speak with someone to help untangle some of these emotions. Number two, the shame and embarrassment you feel really is unmerited. They're the ones who should be ashamed and embarrassed for their behavior. Um, the two things I'm gonna recommend, because I believe that this is much deeper than, you know, a Kaya uh, quick answer. Number one, I've recommended a book before to people called Total Forgiveness by R.T. Kendall, K-E-N-D-A-L-L. It's called Total Forgiveness. Um, it's a reminder of how we can forgive like Jesus when we can't forget things. Um, and it lays the foundation of what forgiveness is and is not. I really want to recommend it to you. It's called Total Forgiveness. We've done a Kaya off of it before too. So if you scroll back through the Kaya YouTubes, you can find a teaching I did on forgiveness. I want to encourage you to find a way to do something that's going to be kind of bold. And, and Lord, if this is not right, let it not settle in her spirit. The last half of the book of Genesis is all about a brother named Joseph. Okay? And how Joseph is absolutely betrayed by his brothers. How Joseph is unjustly incarcerated. How Joseph is forgotten by people he helped out. And through all of that, God is able to put him in a new place. And part of the story really reaches its climax when Joseph has been favored by God in spite of all that he was happened, all the betrayal that he experienced. And now the climax is when his brothers are standing right in his presence. The ones who started the whole thing and broke him are now in his presence. And it's a story about forgiveness. Part of the reason Joseph can forgive is because he has accepted that the Lord has blessed him so much that the betrayal lies behind him. He's able to see God moving into something better. So the first thing I do want to share with you is that God's not done with you. You need to be done with them, and they may be done with you, but God is not. And as God elevates, God puts us in places 
where that forgiveness has to happen. Now, here's something God shared with me today that I've never preached on, never taught on. Joseph's forgiveness requires that he let his brothers know, I know what you did to me. I, we're not going to act like this didn't happen. Right? In order for me to truly forgive you, I need you to know that I know what you did and I still forgive you. Because what seems to me bound by brokenness is that you're carrying this weight of having been done wrong and people lying and keeping it a secret and because you haven't been able to get truth out, you're incarcerated by the lie that you've got to break out of. And so I would encourage you either, I would probably say in writing, let it be known in this simple, this, this doesn't have to be vulgar, this doesn't have to be ghetto, this doesn't have to be cussing out. Um, that, that may be how you do it in your journal, right? Because you got to get that out sometimes. To let them know, I know what you all did, and I know you lied. I'm praying for you. May God bless you. Because I think what's going to break you out is to now know that you're no longer living in their self-inflicted lie on you, but that you choose to walk in the truth by letting them know that you know what happened. Get the book, write the letter, please go see someone and talk about what you're feeling. All right? Let's get into a religious one real quick. Yeah. <laughs> Pastor. I recently had a discussion with a friend about baptism. I grew up Lutheran, and in the Lutheran church, we get sprinkled with water when we're baptized. My friend is Baptist, and he said that I've not been truly baptized yet because I was not submerged or dumped. <laughs> I would like to know your opinion on the different types of baptism. Also, I was baptized at a very early age. I didn't know Jesus for myself at the time. I did it because my father wanted me to get baptized. I was thinking about getting baptized again as an adult. Is it okay to get baptized twice? Side note, as a former Lutheran, I really appreciate short church services. Is there, <laughs> is there any way you can bring back the hour of power? <laughs> that hour of power is God's will for some folk. Um, so let, let's say what I hope you already heard. If you tell someone they're not truly baptized yet, you're very judgmental and very misled. Um, baptism and salvation are not the same thing. Um, baptism does not mean you're saved. It does not lead to your salvation. Um, baptism to me is kind of like marriage and the wedding in the sense that if you get to the altar, and you don't love the person you're about to marry, this wedding ain't going to do a darn thing. That, that relationship should already be established. By the time you get to the pool or to be sprinkled, your love of Christ should already be cemented. Right? That you're already in relationship. This is simply something we share with the world. Now, the different forms of baptism, if you allow me to get deep for about five minutes, and then I've got one more that I really want to get to. The, the different forms of baptism, to understand it, you've got to know the difference theologically between a sacrament and an ordinance. Okay? Got to teach for a little bit. Sacrament. How many people ever heard the word sacrament? Okay. How many people ever heard the word ordinance? Okay, good. Um, I'm going to paint two different, more, so let's say on this side is the Catholic world. On this side, in the middle is the mainline Protestant where you get the Baptists and the AMEs, um, and over there are the Pentecostals. The uh, Kojics, Apostolics, PAWs, Church God, uh, the so we get the Apostolics, Mainline Protestants, Catholics. You with me? Catholics, Mainline Protestants, Pentecostals. Okay. The closer you are over here, the more you deal with sacraments. When you get here and start moving over there, you're dealing with ordinances. Now, what are the sacraments? Well. The Catholic Church is where you're going to find the most clear example, and there's seven in the Catholic Church. You can Google it when you get home. But here's the main difference. 
In a sacrament, it is, there's a belief that whatever that sacrament is, it is endowed with the grace of God I need in order to be saved. So, Holy Communion on this side with the Catholics is a sacrament. Catholics have to take communion in order to remain saved because salvation is in the bread and the cup. So the greatest damnable thing you can do to a Catholic when they're excommunicated is keep them from getting communion. Because when you keep a bona fide Catholic from communion, you're keeping them out of heaven. There are other sacraments. One of them is baptism that in baptism I am saved. I have to be baptized in order to receive the grace I need in order to be saved. And so in the Catholic Church, they will do it on infants simply because we want the infant to be saved from the beginning of their life. And so they're baptized not because they've made a confession of Jesus, not because they acknowledge they were a sinner, but because someone in their family wanted them to receive the grace necessary in order to be saved, so they're baptized as a sacrament. Now, when you get here and start moving over, there are no, we don't use the word sacraments. If you are ever in a Baptist church and you hear someone talk about the sacrament of communion, they're, they've not been taught correctly. There are no sacraments in the Baptist church and there sure ain't none in the Pentecostal church. <laughs> For us, we have ordinances. An ordinance is basically something we're commanded to do and we do it out of the commandment. So we take communion in the Baptist church out of commandment from Jesus Christ, but not because we believe it brings any salvation to us. We're doing it in obedience to what God told us to do in Jesus, right? So over here, you got to get it in order to be saved. Over here, we take it simply almost as a memorial. I don't want to use the word ritual, but that's almost what it is because there's no salvation in it. Receiving the bread and the cup doesn't make you any more saved. The same thing about baptism. So in the Baptist, so Catholic Church, seven sacraments. Baptist Church, two ordinances, communion and baptism. And baptism comes to those who made a confession of Christ as their Lord and Savior. So in a Baptist Church, technically, they will not baptize infants. We don't baptize children. So when we have baby dedications, that's not a baptism. That's just a blessing and a dedication because that child cannot confess Jesus Christ as their own Lord and Savior. When they can, when they're of age to understand that, then we baptize them as a sign to the world of the confession that they've already made. Now, that being said, my Lutheran sister, um, we submerge because it's the model that we see in Jesus. Um, it is not forced on anyone, even at Alfred Street, but we encourage it and teach it as a model of following Christ. And because you were baptized as a child, not of your own will, I would suggest to you it is highly appropriate for you to be baptized again if you so desire. It's not going to save you. It's not going to save you. Your confession saves you, but the baptism can be in obedience to the commandment. Now, that being said, what baptism is not is something you should do every time you strayed away from God and you repent and come back. Like, that, that's not what we're going to do. You're not going to leave church for a year, come back. I'm, I gave my life to the Lord again. I want to get baptized. And, and finally, um, um, uh, I don't know about our power, but I sure would like to try to bring it back. Amen. We, uh, yeah, it, it, it works for me. Praise his name. You know what, I want this one to be the last, only because I want to honor our time to end at nine. Um, we also have some people that I'm going to be praying for about to hit the road. They've got long travel, so we want them to be able to hit the road correctly. And, um, and this one's kind of deep and personal for me. Yeah, there's another relationship one we'll come to um, another time. Dr. Wesley, thank you for the amazing work you've done, been doing through the Kaya services, listening to your Kaya sessions and other sermons has really changed my life and my walk with God. I am so grateful. Thank you. Um, hopefully, my question isn't coming late. I'd really appreciate it if you could give a synopsis on the biblical interp interpretation and the godly position on divorce and remarriage with particular reference to Malachi 2, Matthew 5, 1 Corinthians 7, 
and any other scripture you find to be relevant to my situation. In my case, the marriage is broken down and the other party had already initiated the divorce proceedings about a year ago. However, for unknown reasons, the proceedings have been abandoned and I am left hanging in the limbo. I've tried to find out why the proceedings have been abandoned to no avail and I've reached a point where I intend to go to court and finalize the divorce myself. I have prayed to God and I'm at peace with the decision. However, the only thing holding me back is the scripture, God hates divorce. Regardless, I am concerned that the context in which the scripture has been used and interpreted is wrong, and it's possible that in my case, divorce is the better way to go. I do not want to continue in this weird situation only to find out later that the interpretation of God's position on divorce and remarriage is wrong. May I rely on your expert understanding of the Bible. <laughs> that ain't right. Um, to address the situation. I already have the court papers ready, but I will wait till after the October Kyer session <laughs> before I take any further steps. Many thanks and God bless you. So you can understand a little bit of my concern in answering this because I don't want my opinion which is obviously shaped by my own experience to make you think God is saying to you, go file those papers. I want you to be in prayer and be led as the spirit will lead you, not as any other human, because this is a serious, a serious decision. A few things I'm gonna say. How many people are married in here? If you're married, raise your hand. How many of you have been married? Raise your hand, anybody been married? So before I give any commentary, I want to make a few things clear, and I hope you hear me, because I can be very easily distorted if you don't. Number one, every marriage is different. And sometimes you've got to be careful of taking counsel from someone simply because they are married or were, not knowing that the dynamics of their marriage are absolutely different than yours. Married couples are not all in some club that we you know, have the same experiences. It's just not, it, everything's different, um, which is why some people make it 50 years with smiles on their faces and some make it to five and can't stand the person they live with. Everybody's different. Second thing I want to say is that if at all possible, I would encourage you and all who are here to try to save your marriage with all the might you have. Divorce is very ugly, and it hurts. It looks so good when you're in the middle of a messy marriage, and it hurts, and then you get on the other side and realize the grass ain't always greener. Take it as a divorcee when I tell you these streets ain't got too much of nothing. <laughs> Hear me. Mm -mm. Nothing in the world is as beautiful as a godly married couple. If you've ever seen a man and a woman who loved the Lord and that love of the Lord drew them to one another and they survived the ups and downs, you're looking at one of the most beautiful things you'll ever see in life, which I think is why people want to be married. That being said, saving a marriage is not always possible. Things happen. And I believe you can forgive anybody of anything, but it takes two hearts fully surrendered and open to the will of God and to the marriage. And sometimes that's just hard to find. Um, does God want us to be divorced? I don't know the mind of God, but I can probably safely say no. But does that mean God wants me to be miserable for the rest of my life? I can probably say no. So let me speak from one who's been in that place and simply say to you, again, that struggle is inevitable, but misery is not God's will. Um, and I don't know all the dynamics of what's happening here. The one thing I have learned in dealing with married couples and being married myself, even the thinnest pancake has two sides. 
And all I know is this three paragraph email. I don't know what you did. I don't know what, what her did. And it's hard for me to give any advice to you because everybody has different sides and different perspectives. I believe any couple can work it out if they really have a heart for the Lord to do so. But sometimes that's easier said than done. You use the passage, God hates divorce. And that's in the Bible. It definitely is. I want to add another passage because I don't think we should ever develop an entire position off of one scripture. God hates, sin God hates divorce and God loves sinners. So if my divorce is a sin, it in no way means that God doesn't love me. And that that love continues to help me rebuild and remold my life. Brother, you asked me about the Bible and marriage, and I think it's so important, and this is a little difficult, to understand why some of what you read in marital laws in the Bible exists. And you all stay with me, this is gonna get a little deep for a moment. I need you to understand the cultural dynamics that are at work in Jewish marital law because that's all you read until you get to Paul. Even what Jesus quotes is Jewish marital law, which obviously informs Christian as well. And you gotta know the cultural context. All Jewish marital law, and 80% of what you read in Bible, well, not even that, 90% of what you read in Bible and marital law are written from the male perspective. What you quoted in Matthew 5 that you asked me to read, let me read Matthew 5. Matter of fact, let's turn there. If you've got a Bible, go to Matthew 5. And please make sure you hear me. I am not trying to justify divorce. I'm trying to make certain you hear things correctly. Matthew 5, verse 31, that's, that's the, the passage. That's the run-to passage about divorce where Jesus speaks Matthew 5, beginning verse 31. It has been said, please note that that phrase, it has been said, is a direct reference to there's a scripture. So when Jesus, whenever you see Jesus said, you've heard it said, or it has been said, he's referencing a scripture that exists in Old Testament law. You all with me? So when Jesus says in verse 31, it has been said, he's referencing a passage of scripture. It has been said, anyone who divorces his wife must give her a certificate of divorce. But I tell you that anyone who divorces his wife, except for sexual immorality, makes her the victim of adultery, and anyone who marries a divorced woman commits adultery. That's the passage, right? That's the one we hang on. Please note that all of that is written from the dominant perspective of men. If a man divorces his wife, there's no, there's no context for the wife to divorce the, the husband. And if a man divorces a wife, he makes her a victim of adultery. It does not say he is a victim of adultery. And any man who marries a divorced woman commits adultery. I want to make certain you catch how this is written. It, if you're a lawyer, you, this is what you're going to argue. If the man divorces the woman, she becomes a victim of adultery. If you marry a divorced woman, you are now committing adultery. But I, the one who divorced her, if I marry another woman who hasn't been married, I'm not committing adultery. Read it technically. What Jesus says is if the man divorces the woman, she is a victim of adultery. If another man marries the divorced woman, he commits adultery, but there's never an indictment on the man who divorced in the first place. It's all written from male-dominant perspective. Proverbs, the passage you love, if a man finds a wife, he finds a good thing. There ain't nothing in there about if a wife finds a man. Everything is written from male perspective. Why? Because Jewish law saw women and wives as men and husbands' property. 
And the law was not written around any theological, ethical thing. It was written around the fact that even if I divorce her, she's still mine. And if you marry her, you are violating my property. All Jewish law is written from the perspective that women belong to men. And if you violate her, you have violated me, and you might as well have stolen my land, which is why I can have you killed. So as we apply these Jewish property laws, I'm wondering how they fit into a society where we know women are not men's property. And if the law around divorce, listen, put God in it, put God, I'm not saying take God out, but don't take out the cultural context either. That before you start slapping scriptures on people, make certain you know the context and the foundation of them. And the foundation of this is a patriarchal system where a woman has no rights and she belongs to a man for the rest of her life. So with all those scriptures that are listed, I add two more and I'm done. You want to list out all the passages on divorce? I I had them thrown at me. I got the email when I got divorced. I read them all. Why I shouldn't pastor anymore. Read them all. I'm not going to throw two. I'm going to throw one on you that, that, that put me at peace with where I was. And it's not where I say you are my brother. I'm not telling you to get divorced. But the one passage of Scripture that hit me the most, beyond Matthew 5 and beyond Malachi this and Leviticus that, was Romans 5 and 20. And Barbara, Romans 5 and 20 is real simple. You ain't got to look it up. I'll tell you what it says. Wherever sin abounds, grace abounds much more. So even if you want to label the divorce as sin, here's what I know. God loves sinners, and grace is always greater than sin. And only those two people in that marriage know what happened, know how hard they tried to save it, and only they will stand before God in account for what happened between them. So my job as pastor, our job as church, is not cast judgment. To love you, let you and the Lord work that out. Because when we get to heaven, I will never have to give an account for your marriage. That's between you and the Lord. And if you can be at peace with where you are, God bless you. Thank you all for some time of answering questions tonight and being real and transparent. I'm going to lift up a prayer. And after we close tonight, if you're with us and you want to know a little bit more about that love of Jesus Christ that we've been speaking about, or you're looking for a church that will let you get married even if your spouse is a Lutheran, (laughs) uh, um, uh, if you're looking for a church that every now and then has one-hour worship services, you have found the right place. There are going to be some deacons and ministers down here at the altar, and I welcome you to come. Uh, let's, Let's bow before the Lord. It was your servant, Martin Luther, one of the leaders of the Reformation, O Lord, who said that I am faith-seeking understanding. Lord, that we've come into this place with faith in our hearts, but a mind that searches for understanding and wisdom. I pray, O Lord, that that has happened for someone tonight. I pray that someone, O Lord, will be challenged to go and study the Word of God for themselves and to speak to you directly to never be dependent upon the perspective and opinion of one pastor, but to ask you, O Lord, to speak to their heart about what they should do. I pray, O Lord, that if there be anything I've shared tonight that was misaligned with your will and your word, convict us before this night is over. If anything, O Lord, has been shared that is meant to help edify my brother or my sister, Let it take hold of them that they may not only be a hearer of the word, but a doer, a liver of the word as well. Thank you, O Lord, for our time together tonight. 
pray that you would give us traveling grace and mercy as we return home. I pray for my sisters who hit the road, oh Lord, that you'd give them traveling mercies. I ask, oh God, that all of us would rest in peace. I pray that you have some good sleep tonight. I'm talking about mouth wide open, drool coming out your mouth, sleep. Wake up refreshed tomorrow. May the joy of the Lord be your strength. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Hey, we'll see you all next month. Go in the grace of God and may the grace of God go with you.